Welcome, everyone, to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Here we go. What's up, you guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Two Tongues Podcast. Today we're getting back into the uh, to the mystical. Uh, we're getting back into um, Carl Jung's Red Book, so I guess that makes this Gandalf the Red Part 6. Part 6, can you believe that? It's been interesting because there's so much, in terms of the stories, there's so much going on, you know. Um... But I just I feel a little guilty though, because like I did, um, I did Jordan Peterson's Maps of Meaning, I think in four or five. And I'm already on six with this, with no end in sight. So I'll be able to bring you some more of these here and there for quite a while, unless they cease to be interesting, in which case I will abandon it immediately. All right. Well, I usually do a bit of an intro with the. Uh, with the Gandalf the Red series, it's been interesting because it's, well, like I said before, there's a lot going on. What I mean is that every time we get together to talk about it, it's a different dream. It's a different story. It's a couple of different dreams. And they're building on each other, but they're pretty they're pretty disconnected. Um, you know, it's like that... It's like that show that you can turn on. It's easy to watch because you don't need to. You don't necessarily need to to have any of the history of the show. If you never watched it before, there's that there's that show that you can turn on and it's fine. That's kind of like what the Red Book has been for me. I could set it down for a while, pick it back up, and it's like it doesn't really matter um, that months have gone by. I can kind of jump right back in, and uh, um, so that's what we're gonna do. I mean, we're, this one's kind of interesting today. Um, because Carl Jung has an encounter with the devil. Ba ba ba. He has an encounter with the devil uh, in his fantasy. And that's pretty interesting. You know, it's not something that, you know, you kind of imagine that you're in control of your fantasies. And most people, I would imagine, would agree with the idea that uh, choosing to have an encounter with the devil in fantasy or in real life doesn't sound like something we'd be chomping at the bit for. Um, but that's exactly what Carl Jung does. Um, so, I guess we can jump right in. I mean, we're going to build from where we from where we left off, which, if you remember, started off with Carl Jung doing this exercise, active imagination, where he basically just allows fantasies, images, and stories and narratives to come to pop in his head. You know, he does it in a meditative way. Um, I don't know how structured it is. He, you know, I, I haven't seen a description of how he does it. Um, but it's kind of like a waking dream, and he just tries to tap into his unconscious so that he can explore ideas and questions that he that he doesn't have um, a solution for, you know, so he can tap into the power of the unconscious and find there 
something meaningful, something useful, and uh, and he's looking for the most important things. He's looking for the meaning of life. You know, he's looking for uh, and to understand what what it is to be conscious and what our relationship is to the world around us and one another. All the same questions I love, you know? And he's he's looking for those answers not in ancient tomes, not in, you know, religious uh, exercises. Um, well, I mean, an argument could be made that active imagination is a, a type of religious exercise, but he's not going to holy books for the answers, you know? He's, he's going to his unconscious for answers. And that's fucking cool. I mean, I was listening to a podcast this morning, and the guy was talking about how uh, he feels like he needs he needs to defend certain thinkers. And he was going through thinkers, including Jung, and he he brings up Nietzsche. And Nietzsche is um, well, he had a big influence on lots of people, but but Jung is no exception. And uh, one of the things he said about Nietzsche was that he was a deeply religious person. You know, he, he was deeply, deeply spiritual. He was connected to the reality of the spiritual component of our existence. And so he couldn't deny the spirit. He couldn't deny divinity. He couldn't de- deny the supernatural um, in a certain way. But he, but he was also very, very imperi- um, um scientifically minded, you know, empirically minded. So he he couldn't buy in to the religious ideas of his ancestors or anybody else's for that matter because it was all hokum to him. He was too rational, too scientific, too um reasonable to let himself believe that divinity could exist um in a way that wasn't obvious and apparent in the world. And so he so he had to f- Find a place to put divinity in 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 his world where he could accept it because he couldn't deny it, but he couldn't get rid of it. Um, and so he put it in the human being. And th- this is the idea of the Superman or the Ubermensch. So he places the idea of God into the human being like it's a potentiality, like it's something human beings can aspire to. It's it, you know, we're capable of becoming God. And that idea, according to the gentleman in the podcast, is what drove Nietzsche insane, literally insane. And um, I think that's interesting. I think it's really fucking interesting that you could seek the divine within yourself and that that truth might actually drive you insane. It might actually separate the the veil between... um, reality and and mystery you know and then you might literally dissociate from reality in a way that you can't recover from like it's dangerous i say that because that's exactly what carl jung is doing here he's going into the unconscious which is the divine within himself and he's doing it on purpose and he's seeking just like nietzsche did and there are times where in the Red Book, we've already talked about times where Carl Jung fears that he's going crazy. Or he, he continually talks about being afraid about what he sees or what he encounters or what he has to do and he doesn't want to do. And, and all this stuff is happening in fantasy. It's not real. It doesn't seem like there's real consequences. But there's real fear. And I think it's connected. You know, and he even talks about um, 
what did he call it? Uh, well, he, he made some reference to insanity being divine. Like there's something about there's something about being crazy or a certain type of crazy that allows you to actually see things more clearly, to see things more as they really are. And that's something that is desirable, you know, um, to reveal something hidden, some mystery. That feels good, you know. But do you have to become crazy to get there? You know, that's a real fear and a real risk. And and it plays into today's episode really well because what could be what could be riskier than having an encounter with the devil? So that brings me to the first the first bit here, which is called the red one. So Carl Jung's diving into his fantasy world, and this is what he says about it. The door of the mysterium has closed behind me. I feel that my will is paralyzed and that the spirit of the depths possesses me. <laughs> All right, fuck. Well, I don't even, I mean, there's more to this, but let me just stop here. Young talks in poetry and in, and because as you would expect, he, he thinks in images, right? He's trying to come up with, um, with a thread of something. Um, and it's just I'm distracted because it's the language is so similar to what you would hear from well somebody who's, who has a mystic experience somebody who you know trips psychedelic has a mystic experience he might say something like I felt like the mysterium the door of the mysterium closed behind me you know <laughs> it's like you stepped into another world and the door to reality, all, everything that's familiar, the, the bright sun shining through that passageway that you just stepped through, just gets closed behind you, and you're in a you're in a place that you've never been, you know, and there's no going back, you know. The door of the mysterium has closed behind me. I feel that my will is paralyzed, and that the spirit of the depths has possessed me. So, for your will to be paralyzed is something like. It's something like that ego death experience that is also talked about in, in mystic experience, an ego death. It's like having no will. That's a pretty good way of explaining it. And he says, I feel that my will is paralyzed. It, it almost seems like Carl Jung is able to step into a mystic experience of the sort that you would have, you know, let's say from a psychedelic substance or some really hard, hard-earned experience through through deprivation of sleep or food or something like that, or a st ecstatic ritual, something that's difficult or, or nearly impossible. And he seems to be able to just do this, to just create for himself an experience like this. And he doesn't seem to be using any substances to get there, and it doesn't seem to be particularly hard for him, you know, but, but you know, whatever. Maybe he's been practicing this technique for years and years and years, and it was hard for him, and that's probably more realistic. But everything he's saying here sounds very much like a, like a mystical experience. Even the bit where he says that he felt the spirit of the depths possessed him. Because the spirit of the depths is something we, he's talked about in the Red Book before as sort of contrary to another spirit that he encounters in his fantasies called the spirit of the time, the zeitgeist. And uh, the spirit of the depths is like the spirit of all time. It's like something close to the idea of God, as far as I'm concerned. And he's possessed by it. 
And I think that's, well, to be possessed by God is like to become God, is it not? And that's what people say when they have a mystic experience. So I just think it's, I just think it's really interesting. All right, so now we're going to get into the dream itself. He's, he continues, he says, I find that I am standing on the highest tower of a castle. I am the tower guard. I look out into the distance. I see a red point out there. It comes nearer. It is a horseman in a red coat. He is coming to my castle. I hear steps on the stairway. He knocks. A strange fear comes over me. There stands the red one. Even his hair is red. I think, in the end, he will turn out to be the devil. All right, so that's how that's how it opens up. Um, Carl Jung's diving into his spirit world. He finds himself like like you would imagine in a dream, in a strange and unfamiliar place. He's a he's a in a in a tower in a castle, and but he it doesn't strike him as as weird that he's there or that he's a guard, even though he's not. You know, it's just very much like a dream. And he looks out and he sees this this red thing coming nearer and nearer and nearer. And when that thing arrives, it's a human being and he's dressed in red and he has red hair. And that's all some very symbolic, you know, and Carl Jung thinks to himself, I think this guy's going to turn out to be the devil. And, you know, you, you might imagine because he's red that, that you could make that connection. Um, there's not a, not a lot of good reasons why the devil was red. Um, but you know, you can ima- all imagine that ridiculous Halloween costume with the spandex, you know, red bodysuit with the little devil horns on top and all that business. So the idea of red, uh, you know, the color of blood, the color of death, uh, that kind of thing might be associated with the devil. But now the devil, um, who we're just going to call the red one, he speaks. He says, I greet you, man on the high tower. Your waiting has called me. I have wandered a long time through the world, seeking those who sit upon a high tower on the lookout for things unseen. All right, I don't know if you remember this, but um, when he says your waiting has called me, what, he, what, he's, what he's saying is that just the fact of Carl Jung being there called the devil to him, and that's weird. But it's not the first time we've seen something like that, because that happened to him in the desert, if you remember. When he first when he first attempts this, to, to go into his fantasy world, he's seeking after his soul. So he goes into himself, into his unconscious, and there he sees the image of a desert where he's suffering. And he has to wait there. He knows he, there's nothing to do but suffer there. But he has to wait there. And when he does, eventually, his, he, he encounters his soul. Like this woman emerges, and it's, it's the representation of his soul. And that's what he was waiting for. You know, He brought his soul forth, and he had to wait for it. He had to wait within himself, see, where he had sunk down into his, his unconscious, a place where he said that he didn't go before. Even though it's a part of himself, he just left it unoccupied. And like anything that's left unoccupied, it it breaks down. It's full of cobwebs and dirt. And, and, you know, in this case, it was a desert. There was nothing there. And he had to wait and wait and suffer. And eventually he started seeing life springing forth, grass or plants or whatever, springing forth from the, from the desert soil. And then, and he realized that by waiting there, by attending to himself, by being within himself, that he was able to bring it back into order. He was able to bring it back into repair. And in doing that, he he 
gained something very important. He he gained an audience with his soul, something that he'd lost. And this is all very symbolic, but he had to wait in the desert. And it, this is what comes to my mind when I read this. I greet you, man, on the high tower. Your waiting has called me. So he goes back into the unconscious, and he calls forth his soul. But this time it's not his soul, it's not the maiden that arrives. It's the devil. What does that mean? I mean, thoughts come to my mind. The maiden on one side, the devil on the other. You know, perhaps these are these are opposites. Something that recalls the syzygy or the Ouroboros, the union of opposites. And Jung has to realize that both this flawless, virgin, you know, virginal maiden and the devil himself, maybe they're two sides to one thing: his soul. And Carl Jung's never. In these, in these experiments, been easy to come around to the idea that something like God, or certainly something like his own soul, is not the highest, purest thing, but some combination of the highest, purest, and the lowest and most disgusting. And it, it, it must be so, because reality is a unity. It's, it's, it's the union of opposites. It's one thing, not many. So all of these things occur to me as we, as we just break into this fantasy. Um, and then Carl Jung responds. He says, you make me curious. It seems to me that you bring with you a strange air, something pagan. You're no real pagan, but the kind of pagan who runs alongside our Christian religion. That's interesting. And then, and then the, the red one says, you're doing better than many others who have totally mistaken me. So that's interesting. It's like, you know, he encounters the red one, and this is supposed to be the devil. He believes it's the devil. But it's not an image of the devil that's like something you would recognize. There's no pitchfork. There's no horns on his head. There's no cloven hooves. You know, there's none of this stuff that we, that we would immediately recognize as the devil. Um, but he does he does have this red cloak, he does have this big red beard, he does seem to be, you know, um, something like what Jung talks about a lot with his references, something like a wild Germanic hero, you know? And there is something pagan about that, isn't there? And it's interesting, it's like Carl Jung says that there's something pagan about the devil, something that's maybe missing from our ordinary image of the devil. But it's something that makes Jung curious. It like stands out and he thinks, you know what, it's appropriate. But it's not the true, the true pagan um, spirit, right? He says, he says, you're no real pagan, but the kind of pagan who runs alongside our Christian religion. So that's, that's interesting. It's like something like a combination, something that's picked up something from paganism and something from Christianity. You know, maybe something that Christianity lacks can be found in those pagan faiths, maybe something like that. So let's see where it goes. Um, Jung says, I know just as little who you are as you know who I am. I have learned that no one is allowed to avoid the mysteries of the Christian religion unpunished. He whose heart has not been broken over the Lord Jesus Christ drags a pagan around in himself 
who holds him back from the best. Hmm. Young says, I have learned that no one is allowed to avoid the mysteries of the Christian religion unpunished. So it seems that there is something about the Christian religion that's important, but missing from the pagan religion. Just like, just like we indicated a minute ago, that maybe there's something missing from the Christian religion that's there in the pagan faith. And, and Young is saying that whatever it is that's missing from the pagan, that's in the Christian religion, that's something that everybody must recognize. If they don't recognize it, they'll be punished somehow. So I don't know what comes to your mind about what that might be, but I'm going to save that for just a second. Uh, I'm not going to put the cart before the horse. I have thoughts on that. Then he says, He whose heart has not been broken over the Lord Jesus Christ drags a pagan around in himself that holds him back. So that's, that's a clue to whatever it is that's important about the Christian religion that's missing from the pagan religion. All right, so the red one says, only Christianity, with its mournful escape from the world, can make people so ponderous and sullen. Life doesn't require any seriousness. On the contrary, it's better to dance through life. Okay, so now we're getting somewhere. So the devil says, only Christianity, with its mournful escape from the world, can make people so ponderous and sullen. And that's kind of like an insult against Young, who's ponderous and sullen. He's very serious. He's a scholar, you know? And he's trying, he's, he's making an effort. He's trying, he's doing something difficult, trying to come up with truth. And that's not an easy thing to do. He's taking it very seriously. And the devil tells him, life doesn't require seriousness. On the contrary, it's better to dance through life. Now, isn't that pagan? Isn't that pagan, right? It's better to dance through life. I think there's, well, there's something to be said here about dancing, right? The devil's talking about one path, which is dancing through life, and another path, which Jung seems to represent, which is seriousness. And do I have to point out that dancing and seriousness there, those two paths, that they're, they're opposites, right? Just like everything else that we've seen. Everything in these images are a di dichotomy. But like all opposites, we can't have one without the other, right? Both are necessary because opposites do not exist by themselves. They exist as a whole, as a spectrum. And, you know, when you think about paganism, I don't know what comes to your mind, but like orgies, for instance, come to mind. Dancing comes to mind. You know, rituals used to involve actual killing sacrifices, actual wild sex, you know, in the forest. You know, that's what pagan rituals involved. Not all of them, but some of them, you know. And dancing and doing drugs and drinking and, and getting worked up into a frenzy, into an ecstasy. I mean, we're talking about you know, for instance, sub-Saharan tribes in Africa that do religious dances that last days non-stop dancing, you know? And that drives you into a state that's unlike ordinary reality. It drives you into a connection with the divine. It puts you in another world, you know? And this is what's missing. Something like this is what's missing from the serious Christian path. It's a connection. It's a 
physical connection to the wild, mysterious, primal, instinctual forces that connect us to the world and to nature. Right? The Christian wants to mournfully escape the world. That's what he says. Right? The world is bad. Heaven is good. Let's do that. But, what, but that's going to prevent you from understanding that your body and the world are sacred. You have to feel it within yourself viscerally and deeply. You have to understand that you are part of it. Now that's very present in paganism. But is it in Christianity? Isn't that interesting? So might we be better served having something like this in Christianity? Food for thought, you guys. All right. Now we go back to Jung. He says, Perhaps there is a joy before God that one can call dancing, but I haven't yet found this joy. And then the red one says, Don't you recognize me, brother? I am joy. <laughs> I am joy. So by calling him brother... That to me, that's that's more evidence that maybe the red one, maybe the devil, is the other half of Young's own soul, the, the the side that he denies, the unconscious side, you know. And uh, and the devil's calling himself joy, you know. And Young has said, I, I haven't found joy, and he's like, Don't you recognize me, man? That's me, and I'm part of you. So you have the joy. It's all you've always had the joy, but isn't that interesting? To call the devil joy. What could that mean? I don't know what comes to your mind, but I think people, joy is a word that is related to pleasure. I mean, that's what comes to my mind. When I hear, when I hear joy, I think of pleasure. And whether that's mental, spiritual, or physical, you know, pleasure is a slippery fucking slope, isn't it? Because we're all, we're all addicts. You know, of one form or another. You know, we have this serotonin system in our brains that, that keeps us chasing the dragon. Anytime we have positive emotion, we just want more and more and more of it. We want it more often. We want it in higher intensities. And that sort of thing causes us to eat until we're obese. It causes us to gamble until we're broke. You know, uh, joy is a double-edged sword. It's where... It's where the satisfaction of life comes from. It's the very best thing. But it can be the very worst thing and life-destroying. And that's where we see the opposites coming in, you know, coming in union again. Joy is both a blessing and a curse. You know? Isn't that interesting? All right, then it goes on. It says, Surely this red one was the devil, but my devil... He was the joy of a serious person who keeps watch on the high tower. That strange joy of the world that comes unsuspected like a warm southerly wind. Whoever tastes this joy forgets himself. And there is nothing sweeter than forgetting oneself. Okay, so that's interesting. Now when he says he recognizes this now as the devil, but my devil, that's that's a little bit closer to bringing that devil in into himself and realizing that it's part of himself and that this joy of a serious person, you know, that's his, that's his particular curse. And he says that it, 
washes over him like like a warm southerly wind. You know, it's something that he wants, likes. And why he likes it is because it makes him forget himself. And that should make you think of an ego death. That's what happens in a mystic experience. You forget yourself. You are no longer yourself because you become everything all at once. So you do lose yourself. And it does feel blissful. Like nothing you can imagine. Blissful. And he says there is nothing sweeter, right, than forgetting oneself. There's no possible way that we're not talking about an ego death type of an experience. To die consciously so that you can live unconsciously. And that one with the universe experience of being unconscious is peace and joy. For sure. Anybody who's had that experience knows that. And those, the words that people bring back to consciousness when they had those experiences uh, is love. That's what they say, actually. It's not, it's not usually joy. Often it's peace, but usually it's love. All right, then. Jung says, I earnestly confronted my devil and behaved with him as a real person. This I learned in the Mysterium, to take seriously every unknown wanderer who inhabits the inner world. They are real because they are effectual. It does not help that we say there is no devil. There was one with me. I would be fleeing if I did not try to come to an understanding with him. If ever you have the rare opportunity to speak with the devil, do not forget to confront him. The devil, as the adversary, is your own other standpoint. He tempts you and sets a stone in your path. Taking the devil seriously means coming to an understanding. Thereby, you accept your other standpoint. With that, the devil fundamentally loses ground. Okay, man, there's a lot there. But that's really good. So there's just some badass quotes here that like I just can't help but but repeat. I mean, when he says, well, in particular, <laughs> what he says, um, if, if you have the rare opportunity to speak with the devil, don't forget to confront him. I mean, Jesus. Everything about confronting the devil is terrifying, you know? And he's like, that's exactly what you must do. And that's cool, man. Um, I just want to go back to the beginning for a second because he says, I earnestly confronted my devil and behaved with him as a real person, right? So he knows, he knows that this is all fantasy and that this image that he's dealing with in his in his active imagination, this, this red one, the devil, isn't a real thing there. It's not a physically real entity that he's talking to. But he says... I learned in the Mysterium, which is, which is the unconscious, right? To take seriously every unknown wanderer who inhabits the inner world. They are real. So in this case, he's encountered the red one, the devil, in his inner world, in his fantasy. And that, whatever that represents, whatever that force is, is real. It's just as real as anything else because it actually moves young. It actually impacts him. He says it's effectual. It doesn't matter if it's physically real, made of matter. 
it's real because it's there and it actually makes a difference to Jung. Just like any force within you, you know, a force of a force of anger or lust or kindness or altruism or whatever it is, those things are real. You can't put them in a jar, but they're fucking real. You know how you know they're real? Because they move you. And he says it doesn't help to say there is no devil. It doesn't. It doesn't help to say this is all in your head, because they're fucking real. And the, and the force is real. It makes an impact on you. And I think that's interesting. You know, it's something that Jordan Peterson picks up and picks up and runs with when he talks about these transpersonal forces, like the things like I just talked about. You know, powerful emotional forces that motivate you, like lust and anger and joy and um, you know all the, all those sorts of things. All right, then there's this bit about taking the devil seriously means coming to an understanding with him. And he says that the devil is his other standpoint. And we know, biblically speaking, that the devil is called the adversary. And that's something that is part of himself. The devil is part of himself, his own adversary. You know, when you're, when you're thinking through an action, you know, what should I do? Should I do this? Should I do that? There's part of you that says, yeah, do this. But don't do that. Right there's there's a there's a sort of a devil on one shoulder and an angel on the other, and they're giving you pros and cons. You know, as you think as you think through an action or a decision, you're gonna get you're gonna get support and you're gonna get resistance. And this is the adversary that you carry with you, the other standpoint. It's absolutely part of yourself. And he he says that you have to take that other standpoint seriously. He says, thereby, you come to an understanding with it. What does that mean? And when you come to an understanding with your other standpoint, with your adversary, he says, then then the devil loses ground. So what does he mean by that? Well, it sounds like something that Jung talks, talks about in other places. It sounds like he's talking about integration. You know, he, he'll talk about integrating the shadow and by that he means the part of yourself that you deny the part of yourself that you are afraid of or embarrassed about that you shove down in, into your unconscious and pretend that it's not there all of your weaknesses and vulnerabilities but also all your hateful evilness you know the part of you that could kill a man the part of you that can steal the part of you that can that can destroy somebody's reputation for your own ends you know the terrible hitler part of yourself you know that kind of thing um, maniacal arrogance and the whole rest that that's something that if you don't confront if you don't get a handle on if you don't get, have an understanding between the two of you let's say it will pop up as a force of its own and do whatever it wants without your input you know when you when you push things down and you repress them they just pop up in the most unexpected places you know so the idea of accepting your other standpoint and and the devil losing ground to me it sounds like integrating the shadow so that the, so that the devil becomes a conscious part of you you know, your devil becomes a part of you and not just this force running rampant within you. And when you do that, it's no longer an energy or a will of its own. It's now subservient to your will. And that's interesting. It's like defeating the devil by becoming the devil. 
<laughs> that, that's amazing. All right, so this continues. What I said about dancing struck him because I spoke about something that belonged in his own domain. I arrive at his seriousness, and with this, we reach common ground where understanding is possible. The devil is convinced that dancing is an expression of joy. In this, I agree with the devil. Therefore, he humanizes himself before my eyes. All right, so... So you remember the devil's questioning Jung's serious take, his serious pursuit of life, and telling him that life is something joyful and she should dance through it. Now, when Jung's talking to him about talking to the devil about dancing, he's talking to the devil about what he calls the devil's seriousness. It's what the devil cares about. It's his own domain. Those are the things that we talked about earlier, the unconscious things. Dancing, frenzy, ecstasy, you know, ego death, loss of self, you know, that sort of thing. That, that is the devil's seriousness. It's what, it's what he cares about. So, so that's what Jung does. Jung understands this adversarial part of himself. He, he comes to understand the rationality there. You know, what, what makes the devil take that seriously? So he finds a connection between his own seriousness and the devil's seriousness. And this is the common ground. Now he understands the devil. And by doing that, he humanizes the devil before his own eyes. Because what is the devil after all? It's not something that exists outside of you. It is you. So of course you should humanize it. Of course you should rationalize it. And so it sounds like he's saying that to agree with the devil, which he did about dancing, right? is to have one will with the devil. They agree on the, same, on the same thing, right? They have one will. So, to become one with the devil. And this integration makes the purely unconscious force human by incorporating it into oneself, by incorporating it into a human. You and me, Carl Jung. To make the devil human, you know? Literally and metaphorically. And he goes on, he says, yet the joy is the devil. Excuse me, yet that joy is the devil. Or the devil joy has got to worry you. You dispute that your joy is your devil, but it seems as if there is always something devilish about joy. <laughs> is that the case? That's what we just talked about, about addiction and error, right? The experience of joy makes one seek it out again and again. And that can be the path of error or of distraction, or of a wasted life, you know? He says, Life is like a great fire that torches everything in its vicinity. Fire is the element of the devil. The devil always seeks to saw off the branch on which you sit. That is useful, and protects you from falling asleep. If you run after it, you see that joy also has evil in it. Since then you arrive at pleasure, and from pleasure go straight to hell. Your own particular hell. <laughs> man, oh man. Alright, so, he says life is like a great fire. And then he says fire is the element of the devil. And I think this is interesting. This is something I've been toying with lately. Because when he says life is a great fire, and fire is the devil, then what he's saying is life is the devil. And... 
you know, that's not a far reach from saying life is the devil. And I think all of us are shaking our heads at that. What in the, what in the world could that possibly mean? And this is something I've been tossing around with because I, when we talk about, when I talk about consciousness, I'm always talking about God. You know, to me, those concepts are not different. And, and the unconscious, you know, that, that's a part of consciousness. You know, they're, they're one thing. You know, the unconscious and, and consciousness are opposites, but they're in union, you know. Um, they're one thing. And I've always thought something like the soul, the spirit, whatever it is that animates a body. You know, you see a dead body for the first time and you realize there's something missing, you know, something eerie and hard to understand, and it wears you the fuck out, it gives you the heebie-jeebies, when the first time you see one, you're like, what is this, something's missing, what is it that's missing, and where did it go, and that, it could drive you crazy, um, it's definitely scary, and hard to understand, and nobody you ask is going to be able to give you a satisfactory answer, but you get this idea of a spirit, and it's something that is related to God more than your body. You know, we have no problem with that for the most part, thinking that spirit is something divine or closer to it. And uh, the material world is something, you know, that's not. Uh, And that includes our bodies, you know. So we have this idea that there's something God-like that gets put into a body, and that's what makes it alive. And what I would say is that that part... That part is the unconscious part, you know, the unknown part of ourselves, that that might be the animating force in our, in our bodies. The unconscious might be the animating force in our bodies. It might be what we have always called the soul or the spirit. This is something I'm toying around with, I'm thinking through, I haven't thought, of, you know, thought, of, thought about it enough, but I bring it up because when he, when he says life is like a great fire and fire is the element of the devil, I can't help but but read that life equals devil. And by that, I think is the same thing I just said, that the unconscious is the animating force. Life is the unconscious. It's driven by that, or it is that somehow. And that's what the devil is. In this in this story, the devil is the unconscious part of Jung. It's the it's what he's encountered, his soul in within himself. So, is the devil life? I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to think more about that. I'm, I'm going to get back to you guys. All right, then he says this interesting bit. He says, the devil always seeks to saw off the branch on which you sit. And from a religious perspective, we kind of understand what that means. We, you know, we're tempted by the devil and all that. Then he says, that is useful and protects you from falling asleep. So, so you've got the devil, which is the adversary. Is always fucking with you and tempting you and trying to pull the rug out from under you, right? It's always challenging you, this, this other part of yourself that whispers from within, you know, this hidden, invisible part of ourselves that's whispering from within and, and, try, and influencing us, uh, you know, in one way or, or another. That's useful. It's like you're always getting poked and prodded. You always got to be on the alert, and that keeps you from falling asleep. So I think what he means by that is something like the pursuit of joy, right? That's the devil. The pursuit of joy motivates life and action. And so you have to you 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 need the adversary. That's your other half to keep 
to keep you moving, to keep things moving along. But if you run after it, he says, you'll find out that joy has evil in it, you know, that, that, that if you go from one side of the spectrum to the other and you're in hell. You go from joy to hell really quick. All right, then Jung says, through my coming to terms with the devil, he accepted some of my seriousness and I accepted some of his joy. It is always a risky thing to accept joy, but it leads us to life and its disappointment from which the wholeness of our life becomes. All right, so there's a lot there. All right, this bit about by coming to terms with the devil, he accepted some of Jung's seriousness and Jung accepted some of his joy. You can see that what he means by that is an integration, right? He becomes the devil and the devil becomes him. So yes, of course, what you're going to end up with is some of the devil and Jung and some of Jung and the devil because you have you have brought that into consciousness. You, you have brought it into yourself, incorporated it into your being, um, which, which is interesting. It's like when you integrate the devil into yourself, it, it becomes part of you, but you become part of it also. You know, and that reminds me of that quote that I, I can't remember the origin anymore, um, but I've used it before that if you stare into the abyss long enough, that the abyss will, will stare back into you. You know, uh, it's interesting. Then he says it's always a risky thing to accept joy, which we already talked about the risks of that. It leads us to life and its disappointment. And you realize that those are also opposites joy and disappointment. Uh, and he says that is the wholeness of our becoming. That's the wholeness that we're looking for. We need both joy and disappointment. We need both consciousness and unconsciousness. That, that existence is a unity, opposites in union. And that's what we're seeking, the wholeness, the union, the completion. Okay, that brings me to part due for today, which is called... The castle in the forest. So Jung's fantasies continue, um, and we're going to start like this. I am walking alone in a dark forest, and I notice that I have lost my way. I come to a quiet, dark swamp, and a small castle stands at its center. I think it would be good to go ask here for the night's lodgings. I am led into a reception room, and then to a scholar's study with bookshelves on all four walls and a large desk at which an old man sits wearing a long black robe. I think that he is a real scholar who has learned great modesty before the immensity of knowledge. Only with difficulty can he turn his gaze away from his work. The servant comes and leads me to a small chamber with a large bed. As I am tired, I immediately go to bed. An ideal, an ideal though solitary existence, I think, this life of the old man with his books. And here my thoughts linger for a long time, until I notice another thought. That the old man has hidden his beautiful daughter here. An old man petrified in his books, protecting a costly treasure, and enviously hiding it from all the world. He says, sleep does not come. I toss and turn. I simply must sleep. Wasn't that the door just now? My God, someone is standing there. 
Have you come at last? she asks. And Jung says, Forgive me, but are you real? She says, I am the old man's daughter. He holds me here in unbearable captivity, not out of envy or hate, but out of love, since I am his only child. All right, let me just stop there for a second. So what I want to point out here is when this fantasy dream scenario starts playing out, Jung encounters, uh, you know, dream-like images, and they're all symbolic, including this old man in a black robe, which, you know, you know is something like what Jung aspires to himself. You know, he wants to be wise. He wants to be a sage. That's what he's seeking for. And um, when he encounters this image of a sage, the guy won't even talk to him. He's so busy, wrapped up in his work, doing all this serious stuff that, he, that a scholar does, that he, he can't even communicate with Jung. And then he finds himself, you know, sleeping and thinking about this old man and what his life's like, and then this other thought pops in his head, but out of nowhere, and there's zero evidence for this, and that is that the old man has a beautiful daughter hidden away, locked in the, in the castle somewhere. So this is just a paranoid thought that occurs to him and immediately becomes the truth because the, the daughter pops, it pops in the room, you know? It's almost like he made it happen. And that's why he asks, are you real? And she says, you know, I'm the old man's daughter, just like he, just like he proposed. And she says, uh, Young says rather, my dear child, what can I do for you? And she says, finally, finally a word from a human mouth. And she's, she's so grateful just to be acknowledged, just to be, rec you know, recognized. And there's something about that that I think is interesting because it's like by by Young speaking to her and and in doing so recognizing her existence that he makes her conscious in a manner of speaking and that's something that the old man refused to to give her um, himself you know he kept her locked away um, you know he didn't acknowledge her and Young has done that and 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 she's over the moon about it. It says, she gets up, her face beaming. She has a beautiful and unworldly soul, one that wants to come into the life of reality. Okay. So it's like, Young had this paranoid thought that she might exist, and suddenly she does exist in his fantasy. And he, when he sees her, he says that she has an unworldly soul. And I think... By that, he's, he's making a contrast, to obviously, to a worldly soul. So the opposite of a worldly soul, it's something like an unconscious soul, right? She's an, she's an unconscious thing, and she wants to come into the life of reality. That's what he says. She wants to become conscious. So you have this unconscious image that wants to become conscious. And being acknowledged by Jung was the first, you know, wisp of that reality, of that possibility, because she was acknowledged by a conscious being. That, that, that means that she's somehow more conscious than she was before. You know, this is what seems to be happening, okay, as far as I'm concerned. And she says to him, you have already done much for me. You spoke the redeeming word when you no longer placed the banal between you and me. I think by that she means that he no longer pretended that that young and and her aren't 
aren't one thing, right? He, he spoke to her, he acknowledged her, so she's not entirely unconscious. And, and Jung says, woe is me, you now become very fairy tale like so, so Jung doesn't quite know what to make of it. And she says, do not stumble now over the fabulous. The fairy tale has even more universal validity than the most avidly read novel of your time. And you know that what has been on everyone's lips for millennia still comes nearest the ultimate human truth. All right, so, so this is amazing. I mean, we know that she's an image existing in Jung's unconscious. He recognizes her. He speaks to her. And she calls that a redeeming word that takes that takes the, this distance away between them. And when that happens, Young says, well, now you become very fairy tale like You know, there's, there's something here that's, you know, bringing her closer to him is, is it, well, it's something like, it's, it's confusing him. It's, it's, it's not something that he can quite grasp. And she tells him well, not to worry about that, right? She's like, don't you know that fairy tales have even more universal validity than the most avidly read novel of your time? And the stories that human beings have always told from the beginning of time, those things come closer to the truth than anything else. So those are, those are our fairy tales. You remember when we were reading the um, Young's Greatest Pupil series and we were talking about von Franz, who studied fairy tales, and she said exactly the same thing. It's like fairy tales, like fantasies, like what Jung's doing right now in his active imagination, are showing you images of archetypes. They're showing you images of things that exist in the unconscious. And they're things that are more important and more powerful than you can imagine. Because even though they're not real, scare quotes, real, they are motivational forces, instinctual forces that actually do matter more than anything else because they drive your behavior, your motivation, your actions, you know, all of that. And the stories we tell about those images, those are our fairy tales. And so they are the, they, are, they come the closest to the ultimate human truth. So the world of the fairy tale is as real, yet unconscious part of us. It's a real yet unconscious part of us. Young says, tell me, what do you think of the divinity of the so-called ultimate truths? I found it very strange to seek them in banality. According to their nature, they must be quite uncommon. All right, so this, is, this harkens back to an earlier bit where, in a different fantasy, where Young was struggling to understand God. You know, he didn't want to understand God as including, you know, the lowest things, the evil things, the 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 things that um, that Jung himself would place less value on than the higher things and the spiritual things to wisdom and and you know unity and oneness and all all these great you know high ideas, um, and he's that's what he's that's what he's hearkening back to when he says I found it very strange to seek them in banality when he was trying to find ultimate truths in banality in the ordinary. You know, or the or the low, the lowest of things. And he says, according to their nature, they must be quite uncommon. And she says, the more uncommon these highest truths are, the less they speak to you as something meaningful. Only what is human and what you call banal contains the wisdom that you seek. 
Right? It's exactly against his intuition. It's in the banal, you know, where he needs to he needs to do his looking. And and in later years, Jung would say something interesting about God. He would say that people don't find God because they don't look low enough. Isn't that interesting? All right. And she says, do you love me? And Jung responds, by God, I love you. And that's interesting because it harkens back to something from an earlier vision, right? There was another woman, another maiden that appeared in, in an earlier vision and he, he called her Salome, if you guys remember that. And Salome asked him the same question, do you love me? So there's a connection there. And he says, yes. And she says, so you see, even banal reality is a redeemer. I thank you and I bring you greetings from Salome. With these words, her shape dissolves into darkness. <laughs> okay. Okay, so... She sends greetings from Salome. What does that mean? That means she and Salome are the same image, right? They're the same thing. That the, the image of his soul, or at least of one part of his soul, maybe the, maybe the red one, the devil is the other part. And she reminds him that even, that even uh, banal reality is a redeemer. He can't brush that off. He has to see the potential and all the greatest things that he imagines exist in the highest way, in, 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 you know, as God, or in the realm of God, or the unconscious, or whatever, that he has to be able to find that in reality, the most banal reality, because it is there. And then she just, she just drops that wisdom bomb on him and just disintegrates into darkness. And then Jung says, if no outer adventure happens to you, then no inner adventure happens to you either. And I think when I think this is his admitting to what she is telling him, because when he says, "If no outer adventure happens to you," I think that he by that he's talking about banality. He's talking about the adventure you have in the mundane world. So you have to go out and do things in the world. You have to engage the world, uh, because that is a way of engaging. You, your, your own soul, because that's what the world is. Consciousness is the thing you are and the world around you. He says, if you don't do that, then there's no inner adventure that, ha that will happen to you. There's no, there's no enlightenment. There's no transformation that's going to happen to you. He says, the part you take over from the devil, joy, leads you into adventure. It's like you follow your passion, your interests. Those are the things that bring you joy, right? They ultimately lead you to disappointment, which is the opposite of joy. So you have that, you have both experiences, and you know the truth. The truth of reality is a, is a unity, opposites in union. And that, that path through life is going to give you both joy and disappointment. It's going to show you the, the complete picture, right? And that's what you need to know. You need to find that in the banal. Find that in the world, you don't have to go seeking, you know, deep spiritual paths. You don't have to, you don't have to, you don't have to pull out a crystal ball or, or recite an incanta incantation or burn incense or anything. You just have to live. Then he says, do you know how much femininity man lacks for completeness? How much masculinity Women lacks for completeness. 
You seek the feminine in women and the masculine in men. You, man, should not seek the feminine in women, but seek it in yourself as you possess it from the beginning. You, woman, should not seek the masculine in men, but assume it in yourself since you possess it from the beginning. Humankind is masculine and feminine. So isn't that interesting? See, now he's using different words to talk about opposites. Now he's using masculine and feminine rather than joy and disappointment or whatever else. Uh, you know, we, we've talked about many, many, many of these. But this is what he brings to the table. And he's saying, just like what we saw a moment ago, that you, you can find the other half. You can seek completion through the world and through yourself. And so... Uh, a woman, you know, who embodies, let's say, a feminine quality, a feminine personality or characteristic, um, she might be attracted to the unconscious part of herself, the other half of herself, which is the masculine part. She might be attracted to that, and she would, let's say, seek men because they embody that, right? They embody that masculinity. What Jung is saying is you needn't do that. You needn't find completion in a, in, a, in, a, in a man to find the masculinity that you, are, that you are missing. You can find it within yourself because it's always been there. It's just unconscious. So you have to make that part of yourself conscious. And that, that maybe that is the religious exercise. To find the things within you that are unconscious and to make them conscious. To integrate them. And that's how you find completion. And you can do that from within, and you can also do that from the world, from without. And then he says, you are a slave of what you need in your soul. Man needs woman, and he is, he is uh, consequently their slave. Become a woman yourself, and you will be saved from slavery to women. The acceptance of femininity leads to completion. The same for the woman who accepts her masculinity. People hate to accept their own other, but if you accept it, perfection comes to pass. Interesting. So you are a slave to what you lack, and you have to find what you lack. You have to find that completion, and you can seek it out in the world, but ultimately, you need to find it within yourself. You need to make the unconscious conscious within yourself. Amazing. All right, he says, as a man, you have no soul, since it is in the woman. As a woman, you have no soul, since it is in the man. And and this this is interesting. This isn't this isn't the whole thing, but it's interesting, because when Jung encounters his soul in his fantasy, it's almost always a woman, you know, Salome or the maiden. It's it's always a woman that he sees, and what he means by that is the unconscious part of himself. That's his soul. That's the animating spirit within him. And it's all of the stuff that he is not. It's all of the stuff that he is not conscious of. It's the unconscious part of himself. So, of course, his soul, this unconscious part of him, himself, would appear as a woman in his fantasies. And maybe as a man if you're a woman in your fantasies. So, completion, unity of, un of the unconscious feminine and the conscious masculine... That's the desired end. 
Without unity, our soul, our animating spirit, remains unconscious. And we have to make it conscious. Then he says, if you remain within artificially created boundaries, you will walk as between two high walls. You do not see the immensity of the world. Man belongs not only to an ordered world, he also belongs to the wonder world of his soul. Just as you become a part of the world through your bodies, so you become a part of the inner world through your soul. Man lives in two worlds. And I think that man lives in two worlds bit is amazing. Those two worlds are consciousness and unconsciousness. And we live in both. We are both. And that's, that's a, a paradox because we're not aware of the unconscious part. Not exactly. Not in the same way we are of, of, of the world around us. And he says, perhaps you think that a man who concentrates his life, oh, excuse me, who consecrates his life to research leads a spiritual life and that his soul lives. But such a life is also external, just as external as a man who lives for outer things. He has thrown himself away in all the books and thoughts of others. Consequently, his soul is in great need for the recognition he fails to give her. And that's exactly what happened to the old woman's daughter, right? The recognition that the old man failed to give her. And that's what his soul was in, was in need of. And that's exactly what the woman represents, Young's soul. And there's this, there's this bit here about, we've seen this before, and I think this is a fear of Young, that that if he dedicates his life to thinking which is what he which which is what he wants to do you know maybe that's his joy if he dedicates his life to thinking that it's going to it's going to waste his life it's going to his life is going to be sucked up in in to all of these other people's thoughts and that that's just as external as living for you know material things or something it's just as meaningless to live in somebody else's thoughts. It's like you, you must have your own. You must live your own life. If nothing else, I think that's good advice. And the last quote here is, The way to your beyond leads through hell, and in fact, through your own particular hell. Everything odious and disgusting is your own particular hell. How can it be otherwise? If you go through hell, you should give due attention to whatever crosses your path. Quietly look into everything that excites your contempt or rage. Thereby, you accomplish the miracle that I experienced with the pale maiden. You give soul to the soulless, and thereby, it can come to something out of horrible nothingness. Thus, you will redeem your other into life. Your values want to draw you away from what you presently are, to get you beyond yourself. Your being, however, pulls you to the bottom like lead. You cannot at the same time live both, since both exclude each other. But on the way, you can live both. Therefore, 
The way redeems you. All right, I know there's a lot there, but let's start maybe maybe towards the middle. Um, he says that you have to go through hell. Everybody does, you know. And, and remember when Young was when he was so reluctant and resistant to understand God as being the low and disgusting and evil parts of of reality. Um, and wanted God to only be the good and the righteous, uh, you know, shiny parts of reality, the highest and the numinous, you know, that he he didn't have a complete picture, that he was in error, and that he had to embrace the odious and the disgusting. And that means to go through hell. You know, the old alchemical dictum, um, what you need the most, you'll find where you least want to look, right? You have to go through hell. He said, quietly look into everything that excites your contempt or your rage, right? Those are the things that are odious and disgusting, the things that excite your contempt and your rage. And then when you find those things, integrate them. The things that you hate most, bring them into yourself. Find a way to understand them and fit them into your your self-image. He said, when you do that, you will accomplish the miracle that I experienced with the pale maiden, So that was the image of his soul, the old man's daughter, or Salome. He says, you give the soul to the soulless. What does that mean? By integrating something unconscious, you give your soul, you give consciousness to the unconscious. You give a soul to the soulless. And it's not as though you you pulled the soul out of your pocket and you said, I have another one, here you go. No, no, no. It's your soul because you've become one with that thing. You've, you've brought it into your own consciousness. And he says by doing that, he says, thereby it can come to something out of a horrible nothingness. It can bring something new out of the unconscious. That's the treasure That's that's the treasure that's sought in the hero's story. You go into the dark cave. You go into the underworld. You go into the unconscious and you bring back the treasure. And he said, thus you will redeem your other into life. Your life. Isn't that interesting? All right, then he says, he, 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 earlier he said that we live in two worlds, you know, the conscious and the unconscious. But then he says, you cannot at the same time live both. Right? You can be conscious or unconscious. You cannot at the same time live both. But then he says, but on the way you can live both. Therefore, the way redeems you. And by that, he means life, right? You have to live your life. So one must live the journey of life in order to be redeemed. Or to learn to redeem oneself. To learn to awaken to one's unconscious and unify it with consciousness. To become complete again, as we, as we were in the beginning. You know, the Ouroboros, opposites united. That brings me to my conclusion. Jung has encountered many things in his fantasies so far. The deeper he goes, the more he finds. The spirit of the depths, a desert, the sage, the prophet, and the image of his soul, the maiden. Well, he must have sunk deeper still, for in this vision he finds himself in hell or at least in the company of the devil. 
But while he knew from the start that the Red One was the devil, he did not come in a form Young expected. He recognized something peculiar about him, something pagan, which drew his interest. The devil was impressed that Young noticed this, saying, quote, many others have totally mistaken me. It is as though the pagan element of the devil was something important, something that has been lost. When the devil claims to be joy, however, the pieces begin to fall into place. The devil is not something to be avoided or to flee from, as modern Christianity would have it. No. The devil can only be conquered as the pagan would have it, by integrating it into oneself. By taking it into oneself, it becomes part of the self and under its rule. As much as the pagan needs to be again made conscious within us, it falls short without the mysteries of the Christian religion, Young warns. By this, he refers to the necessary sacrifice of self as the redeeming act. One must willingly sacrifice itself as Jesus laid down his life, in order to be transformed, to be born again is something new. We have to die to ourself. But what, who, is the self to be sacrificed? Is that not suicide? But Young provides the answer when he said, the devil is our own other standpoint. This is your other self the other standpoint that must be sacrificed. But how does one sacrifice the devil? Excellent question. How does one kill a spirit? The first step is to recognize that the spirits within us are not distinct from us, but part of us. We are a composite being. Some parts conscious, others unconscious, right? Young said we live in two worlds. To kill the spirit is no kind of death, but an integration. Remember the maiden of the castle in Salome. They are images of Young's soul. They are images of the unconscious part of his being. Young told us that the maiden has an unworldly soul that wants to come into life of reality. And herein lies our answer. The soul is unconscious and yearns to be made conscious, to be integrated into a conscious whole. And so, we need not kill the devil. We merely need to make it conscious. We conquer the unconscious in us by making it conscious, by accepting it as part of ourself. In this way, we free ourselves from our self-imposed slavery, from the adversarial relationship with our own soul. Jung said, you are a slave to what you need in your soul. And what the soul is missing is consciousness. We make the unconscious conscious and fly free. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know, it's not easy work. 
thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode.